Please open your Bibles to Exodus 34. Let us once again unite in prayer. Father, thank you that we can sing of who you are and what you've done, the mercy and grace that we enjoy every day and will enjoy for those of us that are believers, that are your children, that have been saved by your grace. We will enjoy these things for eternity. What a glorious thought this is. We pray, Father, as we worship you in your word, make us tender, responsive, thankful, and give us a passion first for you, then for one another, and then for a world in desperate need of the salvation that you offer through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is based upon his work that we come to you. Amen. You'll remember the American Revolution, and one of those figures that has been written about is Paul Revere. I am not a poet, nor the son of a poet. I don't even like poetry, except it be biblical poetry, but I am going to read a few lines of poetry for you from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's poem, Paul Revere's Ride. I'm going to share the first two stanzas of it and the last two stanzas of it just to give us a little flavor. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. On the 18th of April in 75, hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. He said to his friend, if the British march by land or sea from the town tonight, hang a lantern aloft in the belfry arch of the North Church Tower as a signal light. One if by land, and two if by sea. And I, on the opposite shore, will, will be ready to ride and spread the alarm through every Middlesex village and farm for the country folk to be up and to arm. That same poem concludes with these two last stanzas. You know the rest in the books you have read, how the British regulars fired and fled, how the farmers gave them ball for ball, from behind every fence and farmyard wall, chasing the redcoats down the lane, then crossing the fields to emerge again, under the trees at the turn of the road, and only pausing to fire and load. So through the night rode Paul Revere, and so through the night went his cry of alarm to every Middlesex village and farm, a cry of defiance and not of fear, a voice in the dark, and a knock at the door, and a word that shall echo forevermore. For born on the night wind of the past, through all our history to the last, in the hour of darkness and peril and need, the people will waken and listen to hear the hurrying hoofbeats of that steed and the midnight message of Paul Revere. Now, can you imagine having this responsibility the fate of a nation on your shoulders and the lifeblood of men, women, and children in your hands. His name is in the history books, and we can read about it in poems like this. Yet the news that we have to share is even more critical. We need to share with the world the truth about God and sin and salvation. 
God has introduced himself to his people. He first introduced himself in this particular way to Moses, and it has been reiterated throughout the Old Testament, and we have been blessed to have this truth laid out before us. We want to understand how God introduces himself because this is how we ought to introduce him to others. If this is what God says, this is who I am, this is how we should declare him to the world. And so we are in Exodus 34. Take a look, please, with me, beginning in verse 5. Exodus 34, beginning in verse 5, where the Bible says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This morning, our study will aim to understand the exceeding sinfulness of sin, God's mercy in forgiving every variety of sin, and God's justice that must be satisfied. We start with the truth that God forgives every variety of sin. God forgives every variety of sin. You might contend, well, there's a passage in the book of Mark and also in Matthew that if you sin against the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that sin will not be forgiven you. Okay, we can talk about that later. Okay, if you want a dialogue about that, we can talk about that separately. Rather than fighting with the truth that God forgives every variety of sin, let's just see it, and then we can talk about the outliers in a different setting. God forgives every variety of sin. The passage says in the middle of verse 7, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The words used here have differing meanings. Each one provides a shade of meaning to portray the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the variety of ways that God sees sin. These three words are grouped together in numerous texts. I'll share one of them here. We'll turn to another shortly in Leviticus chapter 16. Now, when you think of Leviticus chapter 16, if you've been studying your Bible, when you come to Leviticus 16, you're thinking about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So in the midst of this discussion on the high priest once a year going in to the Holy of Holies on behalf of the people and himself with the blood of uh, goats and bulls and bullocks and all these things, bringing that blood into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle it on the altar, uh, the mercy seat, we have this statement that God makes through Moses in Leviticus 16.21. Listen to what he says. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their 
sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. There are three words used in Exodus 34, 7. God's forgiving of iniquity and transgression and sin are reiterated here in Leviticus 16. On the day of atonement, God forgives all of these things. Iniquities, transgressions, sin. So, iniquity comes from the Hebrew term avon. It means perversity, depravity, iniquity. Or to deviate from the way, or I think a good word picture would be twisted. Twisted. Something that is out of line. Now, if any of you have ever had your vertebrae in your back, neck, twist and had a pinched nerve, you know what twisted does to you. It makes things horribly difficult, whether it be shooting pain down your arm or leg, whether it be numbness and tingling, pain in your neck. It's a real pain in the neck. Uh, you know all that stuff. Twisted, that's the idea. It's, it's perverted. It's not in its proper sense. Then we have the word transgression. The Hebrew word pesha. Pesha. It's a breach of relationship between two parties. A good word for it is rebellion. It is rejecting God's authority. Rebellion. Twisted iniquity. Transgression. Rebellion. And then sin. Sin. You have the term, the Hebrew term kata'ah. Kata, ah, it's a tough one to say. It means sin. Tough one to <laughs> define. It means to miss the mark. It means to fall short. You think about target practice. You've got the, the bow and arrow, and you pull it back, and you let it go, and, it, and you overshoot it, you miss the mark. Or you let it go, and you undershoot it, you miss the mark. Or you're a little to the left, and you miss the mark. Or if you have a some other kind of an instrument and a gun, and you're, and you're taking your target practice, you've got yourself all set and ready to go, and you, you're, you're, you think you're, you're doing really well with your 45, bang, 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 oh, okay, I scored a two whatever it is in my, my 30 shots, and then you look at your wife's paper, and she's like, <clears throat> of course, she was only using a, a, a nine millimeter, but whatever, <laughs> missing the mark, off center, coming up short, overshooting, it just means you're not on target. Not hitting the bullseye. Sin. We see the same wording grouped together in Jeremiah 33.8. I have this for you on the screen with the definitions beside. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, twistedness or perversion, by which they have sinned, they've missed the mark, against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities, that's that twisted word again, by which they have sinned, there's the missing the mark again, against me, by which they have transgressed or rebelled against me. So God is talking about his people that have rebelled. They're off in, in their captivity. And he's talking about these three varieties of sinfulness. Take a look with me now at the book of Psalms in the 32nd Psalm, please. All of these words are used in this text as well. We had it as our responsive reading. Psalm 32, verse 1, please. Blessed is the one whose transgression or rebellion is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away 
through my groaning all day long. In other words, sin, sin was having its impact on me when I didn't deal with it. When I didn't acknowledge my sin, my spirit and my body was negatively, devastatedly impacted by my twistedness, by my missing the mark, and by my rebellion. That was when I was silent. And when he was silent, verse 4, day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. You see a selah? You're not supposed to really read it out loud. You can. But the point of a selah is to pause and to consider what you've just read. So he wants us to think about what it's like to keep your mouth silent in the face of your sin. Heaviness, brokenness, difficulty. Verse 5. I acknowledged. The word there is yada in the Hebrew. I acknowledged. The word is many times is translated to know. To know, that's the general definition of it. But here it's I acknowledged. I realized. I understood. And if you want to add the 1 John 1.9 concept of homolegeo, which is to confess, is I agreed with God about my sin. It says in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover, the word is to conceal my iniquity. I said I will confess, the word yada is used again, I will confess my transgressions, rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin The psalmist says, if I cherish, regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord does not hear me. But here is not a cherishing. Here is not a regarding. Here is an acknowledging. Dear God, I have rebelled against you. Dear God, I've missed the mark. Dear God, I've twisted your ways. I've gone variant to your will and your word and your way. I've violated your law. And God says, I have forgiven. I forgive your iniquity, your rebellion, and your sin. This is who God is. He forgives every variety of sin. And you know what, friends? It's a good thing. It's a good thing that God forgives twisted perversity, that God forgives rebellion and that God forgives our shortcoming. Because the Bible is clear, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible is clear that our lives are marred and characterized by opposition to God and His will The Corinthians heard about this from Paul when he wrote this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, let's pause there for a second, covetousness is idolatry, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, let's pause for a moment, cheating on your taxes and stealing time from your company constitutes thievery, 
nor the greedy. I really, 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 really want a Jeep. I really have to have a Jeep. I'm passionate about a Jeep. Now I'm, now I'm speaking theoretically now because I'm not to this point. I put it behind me. <laughs> greedy, greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, people that speak ill of God and others, nor swindlers. This is a serious list, folks. Somewhere in there you were spoken of. And somewhere in their eye was spoken of. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. If it stopped there, we would just sit and we would sit sila. And our eyes would get really, really big. And our mouth would kind of drop. But our mouth drops in an entirely different way. As he proceeds. And he says, And such were... Some of you, but now, now you're washed. You are just sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is, this is good news, folks, that God forgives twistedness, rebellion, and missing the mark because all of us would be condemned if he did not. God is a forgiver of every variety of sin. Back in uh, Exodus 34 and 7, 34.7, it says that God is characterized, God is characterizing himself as one who is forgiving. It says, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Forgiving. And he uses a word picture to do it. He uses the Hebrew term NASA. Kind of like NASA. What is NASA for? Well, he shoots rockets into space. NASA. Well, kind of a good word picture for us because it means to lift up, to bear up to carry or take away. And so we have a modern-day helpful way to look at this term, nasa, nasa. It's God taking my sin from me, my possession, my accountability, my guilt, and He removes it. The same word is used by Cain when God pronounced judgment on him. Cain said, my punishment is greater than I can nasa. I can't bear it. I can't carry it. It's too heavy. The psalmist says in Psalm 85 and verse 2, you forgave the iniquity. You, you lifted up. You carried away the, the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. And then we read it in Psalm 32 already. Blessed is the one whose transgression is nasa, forgiven, carried away, born by God whose sin is covered. There is no variety of sin that God cannot forgive. This is very encouraging. It is not, however, the end of the story. God continues in his characterization of himself by saying, this will be on the screen, but who will by no means clear the guilty. But who will by no means clear the guilty. We must understand that God's justice must be satisfied. It's a tricky phrase back there in Exodus 34. The New American Standard translates it this way, yet he will by no means, I mistyped there, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So I have a little language lesson for you, if you don't mind, just for a few moments. 
There it is. The top line is the New American Standard 1995 version. Then you have the interlinear underneath it of the Hebrew text. Now you see a lot of words in English and just a few in Hebrew. So this is an expression. In fact, it's a kind of difficult expression. We can see very clearly the contrast when he says yet. You have the, the vav, the vav. It's basically saying, but, yet. God forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. And there's a major contrast, however. And then he goes on and he uses two words. It's nakha, then lo nakha. The term nukha is the, a word that means unpunished, and it's an expression because it has the, like the noun portion of it, unpunished, and then you have the not portion of it in the middle, and then the unpunished in the verb form, because if you can see at the, at the very last letter uh, word there, can you, can you see that little box, blue box? I know it's very small. It's just a little accent. It, it looks to, like a suffix. For us, it would be like a prefix. That means he, he will not punish. He will not punish, not unpunish. It's very confusing, right? It's just, it does, this is not how our minds work. I wanted to show this to you so you could see that, that this whole thing is built on God saying, unpunish, unpunish, not. Yet unpunish, unpunish, not. God will not leave the guilty those who deserve punishment without punishment. Now, how does that jive? How does that go together with God forgives iniquity and transgression and sin? Well, listen to what God says in numerous places. We're going to answer that question with some texts of Scripture. Exodus 20 and verse 7 says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Pause. What does that mean? Using God's name in an empty uh, fashion. Oh my! Don't finish the sentence. We're going to say la on that for a moment. Too many are too casual with this. And it should not be named among us as becometh saints that we would take lightly the name of our God It says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. In Proverbs 11.21, be assured an evil person will not go, what? Unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. Proverbs 16.5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go, what? unpunished. Proverbs 17.5 Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go what? Unpunished. Jeremiah 30 and verse 11 For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you what does it say? unpunished. The way it's spoken of in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 2, for since the message delivered or declared by angels, it's a reference to the law, law, proved to be reliable, listen carefully, and every transgression or disobedience received a what? Just retribution. Just retribution. 
There are other texts where these things are brought to our attention. But God lets us know that He does not clear the guilty. He does not leave sin unpunished. What is the end, listen carefully, what is the end of God's punishment against sin? Well, we want to answer that with the Bible. Take a look with me, please, at the very last book of the Bible, Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for the words are, these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers, that is the one who has faith, will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. This is good news, isn't it? Happy news. This is a a vision that God gives to the Apostle John of the way things will be at the consummation of all the ages. And we happily stopped at verse 7. But verse 8 is there. And we cannot ignore it. You see, and I use this, I I don't want to be that guy. I'm a positive person. And I'm I'm a, a rejoicing person. But I see a disturbing trend among churchianity. Churchianity wants to talk about all the good Good, happy, love, grace, mercy, but they forget the other side of God's character. And that is an insufficient communication of who our God is. Many churches would have no problem preaching Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7a. But when you get to 34, 7b, and it says, but will by no means clear the guilty, there is absolute silence or crickets. It's like they're afraid of who God is. People won't come to church if we tell them who God is. But if they don't come to church to know who God is, what are they coming for? If I am not here underneath the authority of Scripture and the God of Scripture, what really am I doing for you? That'd be nothing. Doing nothing for you. If I'm not underneath the authority of God and the Scripture. So we must preach Exodus 34, 7b, who will by no means clear the guilty. And what does that mean? Verse 8 is what it means. The Apostle John just painted the most glorious picture you could imagine. God dwelling with His people, taking away their pain and sorrow and difficulty, and giving them joy everlasting. This is is the best picture 
that could be painted, but it is followed by the truth of the gospel. Verse 8, listen to what he says. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Stop right there for a moment. And if you are honest for one second, you know you fall under one of those categories. You and me. We all fit in verse 8. You ever tell a little white lie? You ever want something a little more than you should? The other things are very clear. A murderer, no, everyone wants the murderers to go. Everyone wants the sexually immoral to go, depending on your definition of what that sexual immorality is. Everyone wants them to go. Listen, friend, there's not a person on this earth that's better than me, and there's not a person on this earth that's worse than me. I am a sinner, and my sin condemns me. He just characterized everyone on the face of the earth at the beginning of verse 8. And listen to the result of that condemnation. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And so you might say, well, it sounded so happy, but nobody makes it in. It sounded so good, but it's, it's utopia and no one makes it. It's paradise and no one makes it. He must have made a mistake. Well, I will draw you to chapter 22. We're not going to read all of the glories of what is written in chapter 22, but I want for us to see, starting in verse 12, this same concept. Revelation 22, 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed, blessed are those who, is, who wash their robes. You're a good launderer. So that they may have the right to the tree of life. And that they may enter the city by the gates. Listen to what he says now. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Guess what? He did it again. He just did it again. There will not be any, any, any unrighteousness in heaven. None. So what do we do? We're helplessly and hopelessly lost. How seriously does God take sin? To what extent must His justice be satisfied? Let me take you in your mind back 2,000 years ago. I want you to think of Jesus 
being led with his cross member on his shoulder up the road, ascending to that little hill we call Golgotha, the place of the skull. And I want you to think about Jesus being nailed to that cross. I want you to picture, if you could, the Lord Jesus, the God of all glory, the creator of heaven and earth and all that in them is, the perfect and pure Lamb of God hanging on a cross. And I want you to hear from the biblical record the evidence of how exacting God's justice is. Friend, do you remember the words of the Lord Jesus when He cried out, My God, my God, why why have You forsaken Me? The sin of the world was attributed to Jesus. And God's justice was being satisfied as God's just wrath was poured out against sin upon Jesus who became sin for us. At the cross of our crucified Savior, the justice of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the love of God, the patience of God, the kindness of God, the righteousness of God, and the holiness of God were on full display. Jesus was pronounced guilty and judged so that those who confess their sin and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ would be pronounced or declared innocent, it's only part of it, and righteous. There's the fullness of it. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, For our sake, He, Jesus, or excuse me, He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Listen carefully. God does not clear the guilty. He provides a way to have your guilt removed. He has provided this cleansing of our guilt 
through the once for all sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the settlement, the settlement of God's wrath, His righteous anger against sin. We receive this propitiation. That's the technical term. It's the theological term. Propitiation. The settlement or easement of God's wrath against our sin. We receive this propitiation through faith in Jesus Christ alone. One last Scripture text for us, please. Romans chapter 3. I have verses 23 to 26 as the markers that we're going to look at, but we're actually going to extend it back to verse 21. So Revelation, excuse me, Romans 3, 21. But now, the righteousness of God, that means He does what's right in every and all circumstances, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all who come by faith are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a settlement of His wrath against our sin, by His blood. What does it say next? To be received by faith. We're going to do that one more time. Let's say it together. To be received by faith. One more time. To be received by faith. What is received by faith? Propitiation. The propitiation is the work of Jesus. And the results of that propitiation being applied to us is justification. God removes our sin. He removes our guilt. He removes the condemnation against our sin forever because He poured out His just wrath against Jesus, His Son, who was pure and spotless, who was the just for the unjust. I'm the unjust. He's the just. Poured out His wrath on Him so that by faith, not only would my sin be removed, but Jesus' righteous record added. That's called justification, folks. Justification by faith alone. It's by grace, through faith, in Christ, adding alone to all of it. Middle of verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, long-suffering, He had passed over, that doesn't mean He forgot about, Passed over former sins. Those former sins are all dealt with. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of who? The one who has faith in Jesus. Will you say that with me again, please? He's just and the justifier of whom? The one who has faith in Jesus. Could the Bible be any clearer of how our guilt is removed? No clearer. God will by no means clear the guilty, but He has provided a way to have your guilt removed. In our worship of God, we want to understand how He communicates about Himself. 
He is a just God. His justice must be satisfied. And it has been satisfied through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those who have repented and trusted in the work of Jesus Christ as their only means for eternal salvation have been declared righteous, not guilty, holy. So we worship God. And we call unbelievers to repentance and faith. We are burdened We are burdened for our neighbors and our co-workers and our family members because God will by no means clear the guilty. People need to have their guilt removed. Has your guilt been removed? Who needs to hear this message? Now, I'm not talking about my message. This message of propitiation and justification by faith in Christ alone. Who needs to hear this message? I want you, brothers and sisters, I want you to think of a particular person in your life. And I want you to think about who needs you to pray for them about their need for salvation. And who needs you to talk to them about God's readiness to forgive their iniquity, trespass, and sin, to remove their guilt that they might be declared righteous forever. And who should you be inviting to church to share this gospel truth in a a setting that is different than a conversation? One where God is speaking through his word and through his body. Who is that person that you need to be praying for, talking to about the gospel, and inviting to church? You see, we worship God. God has introduced himself to us, and we, we appreciate it. Do you not feel within your own soul a welling up of thanksgiving? for the mercy and grace that you've received through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is representative of who God is. And we also feel burdened. First, worship and thanksgiving, then burdened to declare this word, this truth, to a world that needs needs to be right before God because God's justice will be satisfied. It's either satisfied in the person of the Lord Jesus on their behalf, or as justice will be satisfied in their condemnation. It's a hard thing to talk about, but it's just the truth. God's justice is either satisfied in Christ or satisfied in eternal condemnation. It will be satisfied. They need, we need the gospel. And so let us, with God's grace, by God's grace, seek to be that vessel to bring the the message to our friend. Let's pray together. Father, you know what is needed in each person here. We ask that you would help us to be vessels 
fitted for your use. Father, do not let us leave here unmoved by these truths, but impacted in our worship, in our service, and in our testimony before others for your glory. Do your work now in Jesus' name. Amen.